Well, Merry Christmas. Let's pray together before we look in the Word together. Lord, what a glorious season this is. Thank you that we can recount the story, that we can worship and praise you for what you have done. And Lord, thank you for the most amazing fact that you, God of the universe, became one of us. But even more than that, you identified with our brokenness, our darkness. May we today, as we look in your word together, gain a grasp of that more fully than ever before so that we might worship you more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but there's aspects like gathering like this and singing together about Christmas that I love. There are parts I don't like very much, the consumerism, the traffic, all of that, and you can probably relate to me with that, but I grew up in a home where my mom loved Christmas. Uh, She did everything to make Christmas as wonderful and perfect and special as possible. I remember spending hours with her getting stronger, beating fudge and taffy and various things she was making and helping her in the kitchen. And she would make all kinds of things. And our family of six kids, eight of us, and then spouses and all, she just worked so hard to make the meals and everything perfect. One of the things she did and especially loved was the tree. And every year we would go with my dad who went with the Kiwanis Club in our little town in Oregon and we would go cut 500 Christmas trees. We would bring them back into town and we would sell them for a fundraiser. Well, my dad always tried to pick one of the very best trees to bring home. And inevitably, my mom didn't like it. (laughs) So after a while, we made a new tradition. He would bring home two trees. And what my mom would do, bless her soul, she's been with the Lord for 12 years, um, She would take one tree and cut the branches off, then drill holes in the other one, (laughs) stick the branches in, tie them up with string to make sure that she could make as perfect a tree as possible. It was always beautiful. She did a great job, but she put a lot of work into it. (laughs) You know, many of us, I think, long for the perfect Christmas. The one that we see on Christmas cards, the one that we see in Christmas specials, where the family's all together, everybody is getting along, every gift is the perfect gift that the person was just dying to get. (laughs) There's no tension, no conflict, everything's right. We long for that, and so many of us work really hard to make Christmas right, to keep everybody happy, to try to anticipate conflict and head it off at the past, to try to make sure we get the perfect gift for everyone, to make sure that everything will go smoothly and the meal turns out perfect. And we long for that, don't we? And sometimes we work so hard to get it. And we always walk away a little bit disillusioned, don't we? Because it's never quite what we long for. And I find that many of us, not just with Christmas, but with all of life, 
when it doesn't work out the way we long for it to work out. Our thinking kind of goes like this too often. Well, things didn't go well. God didn't bless me like I longed to be blessed. Therefore, there must be something wrong with me. All those other people around me, they seem to have it together and get what they want out of life, but not me. Therefore, there must be something wrong with me. Of course, what we don't realize is everyone else is feeling that same way. We feel alone. We feel isolated. Here's a question for you. Who is Christmas for, really? Who is it for? I think too often we feel like it's for those who have their act together, who are the good Christians, who don't have those areas of sin and struggle in their lives. So we think it must be for those who can really relate to the typical manger scene where Mary and Joseph and the baby are all just perfect and happy and sterilized and it just feels really phony, right? (laughs) But somehow we think that's who Christmas is for because deep down many of us as believers, if not all of us, carry a certain amount of shame deep down. Deep down we think, if you could really see what's in me, if you could see really what I'm like, you wouldn't want me. And I hide it pretty well from you, but God sees all that and that's why life doesn't turn out the way I want it to. The truth is we all have shameful secrets, skeletons in the closet, maybe an ace in the hole that convinces us that we are somehow at some core level unlovable. Therefore, Christmas isn't really for me. It's for the other people who have it together. Does God love me? Well, I I know theologically I'm supposed to believe that, but I don't see how we could. And that shame separates us from one another and from God because we withdraw, because we feel unlovable. And no matter how hard we try and how many holes we drill and how many branches we stick in or whatever we do to try to somehow make everything work, it never works. So is there any hope for us? For those of us that are tainted by sin and by shame? Well, I'm here to tell you yes. (laughs) And the Christmas story is the perfect place to find hope for us. We want to look this morning at the beginning of the book of Matthew, the first chapter. Now, when we tell the Christmas story, typically what we do, and it's not wrong to do this, you know, we try to set it up chronologically, so we combine the story from Matthew with the story in Luke and we make a nice chronological story and it's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful picture of what happened. But sometimes we forget that Matthew has his own story and Luke has his own story and Matthew's is very, very unique. In fact, the way that Matthew tells the birth story of Christ, I think he's sending a very, very clear message to us especially to us who struggle with 
feeling marked by sin and shame. And that is that the gospel, the coming of Jesus, Christmas, is for me too. (laughs) It's for every one of us, no matter what we've been marked by. Jesus came to earth as a baby for you and for me. And the way that Matthew tells the story was shocking, was scandalous for the Jews of his day. And if we really look closely at it, it's scandalous for our world as well. And that's what makes it so powerful. (laughs) So let's look together at how Matthew tells the story of the birth of Christ. Now, he begins at the very beginning of his book. And remember, this is the beginning of the entire New Testament. This is what sets the stage. This is what God has given us to begin with as we consider the coming of his Messiah. He begins with a genealogy. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) A genealogy. Don't we love genealogies? See, genealogies were very significant to the Jews because it was very important who you were descended from. If you're to be considered, even today, among the Jewish people, you have to be able to count your ancestry back at least ten generations to make sure you are a pure Jew. And your heritage is especially important if you are coming as the Messiah the chosen one, the son of David, the son of Abraham who came to save the world, the Messiah better be from good stock. (laughs) He better come from the very best stock. So Matthew begins with the genealogy, but he includes some elements that are shocking to a Jewish mindset and certainly, I think, in many ways shocking for us as well. He includes five women, ending with Mary, but four other women we want to look at this morning in his genealogy. That was unheard of in the genealogies of the Jews. They didn't include women. Women weren't that valuable. They weren't that important. But typically, so typically they were left out of genealogies. And he also includes other elements that send a very clear message. So let's look together at some of these elements in this genealogy. But before we do, I want to make one point I want you to hear very clearly. None of us got to choose our ancestors, did we? (laughs) I mean, we were just born into a family, and if great-grandpa was a really bad guy, we don't have any choice. You know, I mean, we're stuck with our ancestors and the genes that they've passed on to us. We didn't have a choice. We just get born. But Jesus had a choice. (laughs) He had a choice for what family he was born into. And this genealogy is amazing in who is included in the genealogy of our Messiah. God himself become man. So let's look at these elements that stand out. These women in particular. I want to start there. It begins this way. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now listen to voice, verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, 
by Tamar. So the first woman we come to, the first striking point that Matthew makes in his genealogy is that Jesus, the Messiah, is descended from Tamar. (laughs) And you're going, who in the world is Tamar? Well, let me tell you, it's the story in Genesis chapter 38. We studied it when we went through Genesis a while back. It's a story that is an odd story that's right in the middle of the Joseph story. It just kind of sits there by itself, it seems. It's an amazing story where Judah, the son of Jacob, has three sons. He marries a Canaanite woman, has three sons by her. He gets a bride for his oldest son, Tamar, probably a Canaanite woman for his son. His oldest son dies. Well, according to what the law says, according to culture, he gave Tamar to his second son. She died. So at this point, Judah's thinking, man, this woman is dangerous. (laughs) I'm not giving her to my third son. There's no way. He's my last son. So he decides to just put her away and ignore her. Well, after a while, she realizes, you know what? He is not going to give me to the third son. He's not going to give me an opportunity to have a family. And so she disguises herself as a prostitute stands on the road when Judah is on a trip, her father-in-law. He takes her, she's disguised. He takes her, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant with twins. Now, Judah hasn't realized who she is, finds out his daughter-in-law is pregnant. She had to have been sleeping around. So he's angry. He's going to have her discipline. Put to death for adultery. And then she says, well, the man I slept with is the one whose staff and ring these are. And Judah realizes it was him. So he repents, the two children are born, and they become children in the godly line of our Messiah. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? That is wild. And yet that's who Matthew points out. Oh, by the way, Jesus, the Messiah, is descended from Tamar, a woman who was a foreigner probably, we don't know for sure, but probably not Jewish at all, and a woman marked by disguising herself as a prostitute, marked by sin and shame and scandal. That's just the first woman. We're just getting started, folks. It goes on. Ram was the father of Aminadab, verse 4. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who's Rahab? Okay, Rahab goes back to Joshua chapter 2. When the Israelites were coming into the land, they sent two spies to Jericho, you know, where they marched around, the walls fell down, etc. It says Rahab, the first introduction we have to her in Joshua chapter 2 is that, oh, by the way, Rahab was a prostitute by trade. That was her job in the city of Jericho. But she took these two spies in who came to spy out the city and spy out the land. She protected them, sent them home a different way so they didn't get caught. And eventually when they came and they surrounded the city, the walls fell down. 
Rahab was spared and got incorporated into the nation of Israel. She did a good thing for Israel, but still, here is a woman who clearly is a foreigner. She's a Canaanite. And her life is marked by sin and shame and scandal. She's a prostitute. She's in the godly line. We're not done yet. <laughs> it goes on. Five, chapter, or verse 5 goes on. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. Who is Ruth? There's a book about her. Many of the women have been studying about Ruth. Ruth was a woman who was a Moabite. Here's what God says about the Moabites in chapter 23 of Deuteronomy. It says this, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Ruth is a Moabite. And there's been a lot of argument among scholars and among the Jews over the years. One of the things she did is she entered the threshing floor where the men were. Women never went to the threshing floor. Laid at the feet of Boaz, which many think, and it's been argued among the Jews for centuries, that she was offering herself sexually to him. Ruth is a foreigner. Ruth is marked by sin, shame, scandal. The fourth woman, Jesse was the father of David the king, verse 6, verse, and then it goes on. David was the father of Solomon by she who had been the wife of Uriah. Her name's not even mentioned. Who is she? Bathsheba. You know the story? From 2 Samuel, where David is up on his roof in the afternoon. He should be out fighting with the armies, but he's on his roof. He looks around. He sees a woman naked bathing. He says, man, I want her. Takes her. Commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. Things are a mess. He's got to try to cover it up. He has her husband, Uriah, murdered. Bathsheba, an adulterer. Probably a foreigner too. Because here's a woman who was married to a Hittite who was a Canaanite. She was probably a Canaanite as well. So you have four women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ who are probably all foreigners, all marked in some way by sin, by shame, by scandal. Probably not the ancestors we would choose for ourselves, huh? But that's who Jesus chose for himself. And I want to highlight verse 6 again for you. Just notice it says that Bathsheba, her name's not given, she who was the wife of Uriah. Why is it mentioned that way? Why is it highlighted that Uriah's name is given and not Bathsheba's? I think to highlight what David did. David, the one from whom the Messiah was to be descended, was an adulterer and a murderer. He killed Uriah. And Matthew chooses, and God through Matthew, chooses to highlight that. 
to take out his marker, <laughs> yellow highlighter, and mark it. And by the way, this is who David is. <laughs> He's a murderer and an adulterer. And that's who our Messiah, our Lord, our Master, is descended from. Now, why would Matthew highlight these five people clearly marked by sin? And why would Jesus highlight them in his genealogy? This was shocking. This would be scandalous to include them. Why would he do it? Good question. We'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) That's the scandalous genealogy. Let's look next at the scandalous birth itself. Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a little background of betrothal so you will understand it because it's a little different than what we have in our culture. You see, in the Jewish culture, when someone gets betrothed, it's usually uh, a young woman, a man a little bit older, but a young woman from anywhere from 12 to 15. She's very young. The parents arrange the marriage. The two may not even know each other. But the parents arrange the marriage and they set up and they do a betrothal. It's a public ceremony where they say, okay, these two are betrothed, but they're not married yet. In fact, usually there's a year in between and during the betrothal, they still live with their parents. There's planning going on and about a year later, they have the wedding celebration and finally they come together. But during that betrothal, it's considered a very serious offense to ever come together to see each other very much at all. And if it ever gets broken off, you have to go through a public divorce proceeding. The betrothal was that binding. So given that, we read this and we see that they were betrothed. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph and before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, think about the profundity of that word found. Probably we read from Luke that the angel came to Mary, said, you are going to have a child by the Holy Spirit. She went off to visit her relative Elizabeth for three months. So probably she's about four months along when she comes back to Nazareth and things are starting to show. She was found to be with child. Think what that meant to Joseph. Here's this woman I don't know well, but I'm, I'm betrothed to her. I'm committed to her. We are planning to get married, and she has slept with another man. She is an adulteress. And according to the law, she should be killed. She should be stoned to death. This had to be completely shocked. It had to rock Joseph's world. <laughs> He's expecting things to go well and things are falling apart quickly. His betrothed has slept with another man. So, Joseph, her husband, verse 19, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. He was a righteous man. He was a man who wanted to live according to the law, who wanted to please God, who was committed to doing what's right. But now... He's in a dilemma, isn't he? What do I do with this woman? 
He basically had three options. Option number one, A. Option A. He could publicly disgrace her. He could say, I did not sleep with this woman. She's pregnant, and according to the law, she should be taken out and killed, publicly humiliated. But that would protect Joseph's reputation, wouldn't it? Option A. Option B. He could say, wow, she's pregnant. It's not by me. But what I will choose to do is go ahead and marry her, and everyone will think I'm the father, that I committed an immoral act because it was considered immoral to sleep together before the wedding day. And their lives would forevermore be marked by the sin and the shame, the scandal of having an illegitimate child. Option B. (laughs) Option C. What he could do is choose to divorce her privately, as quietly as possible, before the authorities so that she could sneak away, go have the child somewhere, maybe make a fresh start, but she would still be known as one who had a child out of wedlock. But at least Joseph's reputation would remain intact because it would be known that it wasn't him. And hopefully the very best scenario would be the man that the man who slept with Mary would come and marry her to make it right. That's what was supposed to happen according to the law. Option C. Joseph opted for option C. Hopefully she'll sneak away. My, re- my reputation will remain intact. This should work. But God came along, (laughs) sent an angel, and had a different plan. He basically said, uh, Joseph, your plan? Wrong. We're not going with C. We're going with B. (laughs) We're going with B. He goes on to say this. The angel shows up, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in hers of the Holy Spirit shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God comes and says, By the way, I have a different plan for you, Joseph. I want you to go ahead and marry her. Don't be afraid. What would he be afraid of? The rejection of the community. The shame that he would have to live with for the rest of his life. And God says, don't be afraid. This actually is a fulfillment of prophecy. We don't have time to really go into the quote here from Isaiah chapter 7. Let me tell you briefly the story. King Ahaz, who is in the genealogy, is not a great king. And he's terrified because the Assyrians are coming. They're going to attack him. This is around 800 B.C. The Assyrians are coming. He's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. Isaiah comes and says, Hey, God will protect you. Ask for a sign, any sign, so that you can know that God's going to come through and protect you. And Ahaz says, Oh, I don't want to ask for a sign. And Isaiah says, Okay, here's your sign. A maiden will be with child. And before that child's three years old, the Assyrians will be defeated and wiped out and you'll be saved. 
Amazing story, and it happened. Isaiah himself had a son. And the people were saved from the Assyrians. And they called him Emmanuel. That was not his name, but that was what he was called in the sense that it was proof that God was with them. Just like Jesus was not called Emmanuel, but he is proof that God is with us. But what Matthew is saying is what happened 800 years before was a historical fulfillment, but the greater fulfillment, the secondary fulfillment, is happening in Jesus. The virgin being with child is proof that God is with us. So God says, don't be afraid to take this child. I want, and get this, folks, this is, this is amazing. I want the Messiah to be raised in a family that is marked by sin and shame and scandal. Because Jesus would be seen as an illegitimate child from here on. And God says, that's how I want him to be raised. That's how I want him to be treated in the community. So Joseph, go with plan B. Marry her. Embrace the shame. Because that's my plan. (laughs) And to his great credit, Joseph did it. Verse 24, Joseph awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So why would Matthew tell the story in this way? It's not the normal Christmas story we hear, is it? Well, let me say something about Matthew. <clears throat> Remember who he is? He was a, also called Levi. He was a tax gatherer, rejected, marked in his society by sin and shame and scandal. You see, he understood the struggle we have sometimes. Jesus wanted the Jews of his day and everyone since, including all of us, to know that Jesus did not come for the righteous who have it together. But the way he came, his genealogy, the way he was born, how he had to grow up in the town of Nazareth, is proof forevermore that he came for sinners like you and me. He didn't come for those who have it together on the perfect picture Christmas cards. He came for you and me who struggle and sin and are marked by sin and shame and scandal. We are the ones that he came for. That's what Matthew so desperately wants us to get. Every one of us. Verse 21, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. The Greek version of Yeshua, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. The Jews were looking for a Messiah that would save them all right from the Romans. He'd be a political savior. But he says clearly, no, he'll be one who will come to save his people from their sins. The Jews wanted a political Messiah. They wanted essentially a Santa Claus Messiah which is too often what we're looking for. Somebody who's going to come and make our lives all better and fix everything so life will go easy for us. And he says, no, I came 
to save you from your sins, to deal with that deep shame, the sin that you struggle with that makes you feel like I must be unlovable. That's why life doesn't go the way I want. He totally identifies with us in our struggle, in our sin, in our shame. Jesus chose to begin life this way. He chose to live a life where identified with sinners all the way through. And He chose to die on a cross, rejected by His society, surrounded and marked by sin and shame, to say once for all, are you a sinner? Do you struggle? Do you feel shame? Do you feel unworthy? You're exactly the person I came for. So this Christmas, let's not let our sin and our shame cause us to withdraw from Jesus. No, the message of Christmas is that He came for you so that in your sin and your shame you could go to Him. The door is open. The throne room is open for you to come to receive forgiveness and life every minute of every day. Do you deserve it? No. Do I deserve it? No. But it's a gift. He took our sin and shame on the cross for us so that we could come freely into His presence and experience life. So let's not let our shame and our struggles keep us from Him. Let's let them drive us to Him. We're going to sing in a moment the wonderful Christmas song, O Holy Night. Says first verse says this, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared, and listen to this line, and the soul felt its worth. This Christmas, let the soul, your soul, feel your worth before Him because He came, God of heaven, and identified with your sin and shame, took it on Himself so that our souls could feel their worth. Let's pray. Lord, what a miracle this is. We admit we don't deserve Your grace your forgiveness, your life. But thank you that you identify completely with us, that you chose to be marked by sin and shame and scandal from your birth on. So we would know without a doubt that we are accepted by you, forgiven by you because you understand and you took our sin and shame on yourself. So we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.